Hello, and welcome back to Found, TechCrunch's podcast where we bring you the stories behind the startups from the founders who are building them. And today I'm joined, as always, by the lovely Dominic Midori Davis. Tom, how's it going? Well, we are getting ready for Disrupt. Woohoo! I hope to see you all there. We're doing a live recording with Windows Snyder from Thistle Technologies. And on top of that, you get to use promo code FOUND to save an additional 15%. Visit TechCrunch.com disrupt to learn more. And today, we're talking to Marco Zappacosta from Thumbtack, which is a marketplace that connects homeowners to home care professionals. But don't let me tell you it's a good episode. Hear it from Marco yourself. Hey, Marco. How's it going? I'm well. How are you, Becca? I am doing well. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Thumbtack? Sure. So Thumbtack is a technology company that helps millions of homeowners care for and improve their home. We've been working on it for over 15 years now. And from really any type of job, a small repair job, their sort of routine maintenance or the bigger home improvement, we're the best place to figure out what to do and ultimately connect with the right pro for the job, one of our more than 300,000 active professionals. And I'm curious, you've been at it for 15 years now. How did you get interested in this space to begin with? So in some sense, we did what you're not supposed to do. We decided to start a company and then went hunting for an idea. But I think thankfully, we took an approach that was to look outside of ourselves and sort of say, what's something that we feel like is broken and sort of stupid about the world that seems inevitable that technology is going to fix? you know, we would literally just get on the phone and talk about that. And the observation that led to all of this was, and why is it so hard to hire a plumber? You know, it's weird, like capitalism has made it very easy for you to take your money and get what you want with it. And yet in this category, you have to work hard to spend money. And I think that highlights that it is broken. And it's not because there aren't great pros out there who wouldn't be a great fit for your job and have availability and interest. There are plenty a lot of the time, but it's sort of a market failure that they aren't able to find each other and discover each other. And so so that seemed like just so stupid and just broken. And also something that like, yeah, if you just had an inventory, a database, a record of what people were looking for and all the great pros and their talents, like you should be able to match that up much, much better. And so that felt kind of intuitive and inevitable to us. And then we just had no idea how hard it would actually be, which probably thankfully, because had somebody told me, I don't know if I would have signed up for it. So better to be a little blind to such things. And I'm curious, since you guys were just tossing around ideas to find a problem to solve, as opposed to say someone, you know, oh, I've worked in this industry 20 years, there's been this pain point the whole time, now I'm breaking out to solve it. What other ideas did you guys consider? How long did it take you to land on this one? So Thumbtack was our second idea. Wow. Okay. It probably took us like real idea, right? There's a bunch of stupid ideas or a bunch of uh, hypothetical ideas, but there was only one other one that we got curious about and started to sort of do homework on. And that was in a financial accounts sort of aggregator, a way for you to track your budget, your spending. And if it sounds like mint, it's exactly like mint. And so this is the summer of 07. Mint launches like September, October 07 at TechCrunch, whatever it was called at the time. And it was a very bittersweet moment because on one hand, it was clear that we weren't going to catch them. They did a great job. Uh, They raised a bunch of money shortly thereafter. And so like we lost, they won. 
On the flip side, though, it was very validating because sort of our hunch was proven right. And I remember, you know, there were a bunch of people like my brother calling out at the time. He's like, I'm not going to give you my bank passwords. Mm-hmm. Why, why would anybody else? Which was a very reasonable retort. And then when you see this and you're like, no, if you design it right, if you position it right, and if you provide the right sort of safeguards, there's enough value here that people will trust you to get the convenience that comes out of that. And so that was validating, right? Motivating. So it was like truly a bittersweet kind of feeling, but that motivated us to keep going. It was probably like six to 12 months of chatting before sort of Thumbtack or sort of this problem emerged. And then we kind of zeroed in on that. Yeah, that's so interesting. Because I'm just thinking about like the year 2007. I mean, today I couldn't imagine not having like a service like this to find like a plumber and stuff. And so I imagine like back in the day you had to, I don't know, get a phone book or something. So when you were building this product, what was the initial market and consumer reaction to this technology? Yeah, you're sort of thinking about it the right way. Historically, this problem was solved either by going to the newspaper classifieds or to a directory and then word of mouth, right? Asking a friend, a neighbor or whatever. At the time in 2007, 2008, what we saw was that every online solution was just a offline product ported online. So Craigslist obviously being the classifieds and then Yelp and others being the directory. But when we really sort of thought about that, neither one of those models made sense for hiring pros. Classifieds, if you think about it, they're ephemeral, right? They roll off. And that's great because it keeps the inventory super fresh. But a pro is a pro this week, next week, next month, next year. Like they need a home, they need a profile, they need reputation. On Yelp, the challenge is it stops and really did at the time with a phone number or an email. Yeah, it gives you reviews, it gives you pictures, but that's information. What you need is a connection. You need to hire somebody, you need to book somebody. And so what we saw as the opportunity was to really be that broker marketplace sort of place where these two sides were meeting and really do the work of helping them come together. And that's been kind of the focus from the get-go. Sort of thinking about when you guys got started and how technology has changed since then. I mean, back in 2007, like, sure, maybe you had an iPod Touch or maybe you're using, I mean, the apps back then used to be like... I mean, the iPhone launched 2007. The App Store didn't exist until 2008 or nine, I believe. You know, I, I don't think it's a surprise that Uber, Airbnb, and Thumbtack start within sort of six months of each other. And there are many more, like the whole kind of sharing economy, gig economy, you know, it's been called all sorts of different things. But the way I would characterize it is that all of these services helped bring online some previously offline asset or resource. Airbnb with homes or accommodations, Uber and ride sharing with people's cars, and Thumbtack with people's time and talent. These assets have always been there, but they haven't been brought online and be easily sort of discoverable, hireable, bookable. And I do think the iPhone was critical to that because it sort of brought the internet from our desktops into our world in a way that makes all this, it's not just possible because obviously you could do it on a desktop, but it like, it changed how people used technology and the internet to get shit done, particularly get shit done in their local environment. That's what really changed, right? And I know there's also lots of talk about how the generational divide of how people approach things like using their phone versus using their computer, also things like social media and sort of like how different generations want to interact with technology in general. And so I'm curious, with that backdrop that you just mentioned, how do you feel Thumbtack has been able to meet people where they are and change 
and adapt as consumer trends did with technology as well as booking stuff online, moving onto these marketplaces? How have you guys been able to kind of adapt as the market did? So I think we were just way ahead of the market, to be honest. In 2008, people weren't yet thinking of doing this online, to be honest. I think that is only really happening now over the last few years. COVID, I think, was really the final kind of push to make this truly mainstream. You know, I think that there's absolutely a generational aspect here. You know, like the greatest generation is the least interested in Thumbtack, right? If you just think about like American generations and they're like the most handy, thrifty, DIY, like capable. And then millennials are on the opposite extreme. They're the least sort of like DIY, handy, capable. And the homes that they have are the most complicated they've ever been. They have the most systems and sort of assets inside of them. And these folks are also busy and therefore motivated to, you know, have somebody help them. So I think if you look at who we work best for, it's millennial homeowners Hmm. and it's sort of first time homeowners. And I think that is just wind at our back because that's everybody in 10, 20 years. So yeah, it changes things. Also, think about it. If you've been in your home for 30 years, you know, like maybe your parents, you might have your roster of people already, right? right? They probably even have a drawer in the house that has this stack of business cards in it that are like the people for the house. We are the modern version of that, where you as a new homeowner need to find your people, need to have a place to guide you, and then ultimately hire them. And that's what, you know, we're building. And God forbid a young person made a phone call. We all know that. All of us hate doing that, am I right, Doug? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, seriously, I would rather not. <laughs> but you said that you were early to the market, and I'm really interested into knowing, how did you pitch investors this product since you were early to the market? What was their response? You know, I think the one benefit we've had is that the problem is obvious to everybody. I've never pitched someone and have them been like, what do you mean? Hiring these people is a breeze. I can do it whenever, however I want. You know, you hear the opposite, like, oh, this has always sucked, or I have so many horror stories, or I'm so frustrated by this. There's so much more I'd want to do, but I can't do this and that, right? So I think the pain point is like very, very present for the vast majority of homeowners, right? You know, young people might not get it. Certain people in certain circumstances might not be interested in it, but like a broad swath of homeowners like has felt this and knows exactly what I'm trying to solve. I think the tension has always been like, can you do it? Will the business work? Is the sort of product and experience the right one? Is the marketing plan the right one? Not, is there something real here to go chase? Now that you guys have been growing and been around for as long as you have, especially being a marketplace company as well, knowing that investor interest in marketplaces has sort of ebbed and flowed over the last decade, especially. I'm curious, like, what role did that play in your fundraising journey, if any, this changing feeling around marketplaces, good and bad? In some sense, I don't think there's been that much of a change in feeling. I think for investors and for people who study great companies, I think you see a lot of marketplace businesses among the set of great companies, especially great internet companies. And so I think great investors are always excited and interested in that. You know, maybe from a media narrative, certainly there was a time where the sharing economy was front and center. You know, crypto and other things certainly took over for a while. Now we're sort of in an AI phase. So like, by all means, like the narrative has changed. But when I talk to investors and people who fund businesses, and particularly the most thoughtful ones and the most kind of long-term ones, they appreciate that marketplaces have 
unique dynamics. You know, to make that more obvious, like we have 94, 95% gap gross margins. Mm. That's extremely high. You know, booking.com is a little higher, like 96%. But when you look at who has some of the highest gross margins across a, you know, public sector, it's often the marketplace businesses because, no surprise, they're mediating an interaction. We help broker an introduction. We help a customer find and hire. There's not a lot of marginal cost in that work, right? It's right. not very operational. It's purely a digital thing. So that's never gone out of style. Investors love high gross margin marketplace businesses, as they should. You've been running this company for a while. What was it like initially building it in the 2008 recession? And how does it compare to how you've been running it now during this kind of economic headwind? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm mature for the first time because I'm on, I think, my third financial crisis. And, you know, we started Thumbtack officially incorporated August like 2nd, 2008, which is like three weeks before Lehman Brothers goes out of business. Mm. You know, it's like financial... Armageddon. And I remember sitting there with my co-founder sort of, you know, reading these news articles and we were just like, well, we're not going to get other jobs. So we might as well just keep grinding on this and really make sure we stretch out the little money we had because like it's bleak out there. And the benefit of that, honestly, was it let us be very sort of dogged and frugal and focused. And it's self-selected for people who are sort of very mission-driven because you weren't joining a startup in 2008 because it was like hypey and cool. These were people who really believed and sort of saw the opportunity and were excited to go help chase it. So we didn't know any better. We were 22. So it was, in retrospect, I can say useful. At the time, I don't even remember it being scary. Like, I didn't even know what a reset, like, oh, this is a bank failure, whatever. Like, you, you don't even appreciate the magnitude of what was going on. But it just let us keep our blinders on and keep working. I will say... It gives me a lot of perspective now, having sort of seen a couple of these, and that's useful. You know, it is. it doesn't give you a crystal ball, but it gives you some perspective. Going back to when you guys started the company for a second, because I know you guys started, as you mentioned, through around ideas. You guys were all recently right out of college. So this is sort of like the first step in your career that you're still in, which is super interesting. And still not, stepping. Yeah. yeah, which is not something I know you read a lot about startups. It's like, oh, someone's been grinding away at XYZ Company. They found this little gap. They want to kind of make that their main mission from there. But you don't, you do sometimes, but you don't often hear of not only a founder starting that early, but then the company growing to where Thumbtack has with the same founder at the helm. And I'm curious with that backdrop, do you think it's a benefit or sort of how is it a benefit that you jumped into this head first? You didn't have those experience at XYZ company. You didn't come with those learned experiences or those pain points from other places. And how do you think that's helped affect the building of the business and you yourself as a leader. Yeah, I mean, it's for sure impacted everything in a big way. I think there's some good and some bad, and there's both, right? Like, on one hand, I think not knowing better let us take this swing in a way that had you been in this industry or, you know, been marinated in the way things were, you probably wouldn't have. And so I think being naive from a market perspective can be very useful and also sort of being younger and simply saying, hey, I shop for stuff on my phone. I'm going to shop for everything on my phone. Uh, it's crazy that I can't do that for this category. So I think there's power in that. And I think that extends even organizationally in some sense where you don't sort of inherit random practices simply because that's the way things have been done. Mm. 
Mm. You kind of reinvent the wheel. And the flip side of that, obviously, is you reinvent the wheel. And so you spend a lot of time doing things that like for sure are known and like off the shelf in some sense. And that's a waste of time. And often you do it worse because you don't have expertise or experience. So that's a trade-off. And then for me, I think there's benefits and then there's sort of cons that have to be mitigated. I think the benefit is that my job in some sense is not functional, right? I don't have a specific functional responsibility. I'm in some sense responsible for the whole business and its success and am asked to make judgments and decisions to maximize that. And so that requires, in some sense, expertise about Thumbtack, which I have more than most simply by virtue of doing this the whole time. On the flip side, I have less sort of functional experience. So at this point, we have grown a lot. I've seen a lot. I've worked with a lot of great leaders. I think I've absorbed a lot of that. But well, I think at this point, I've also been in every C-suite job for some portion of time, simply because there was a gap and somebody had to do it. And so I stepped in or me and somebody else together stepped into something. So yeah, have had to like grow and keep up. And we're going to take a quick break, but stick with us to hear more from Marco. There's been a lot, especially in the last year or so, and I don't know if it's tied to what's going on in the economy or sort of the venture ecosystem or not, but we have seen a lot of notable startup founders step down from CEO roles or sort of take a step back. And I'm curious, what do you think about that sitting where you are? Like, who are you thinking about? Like the founders of Pipe. And then we saw they're not a startup anymore, but looking at Brooklyn and like their CEO just stepped on yesterday, I want to say. And it just seems like you're seeing it more often than maybe a few years ago. How do you think about that as someone who has been in the same position at their company the whole time? I think there's something about me that is useful for sort of being in this job over time. I have learned that I have very little like negative emotionality or what used to be called neuroticism. And like when you sort of look into what that is, in some sense, it's like worrying about things you can't control. And blaming yourself for things that you can't control and the anxiety that sort of comes from all that. Like, I do almost zero of that. And that, I think, gives me sort of the perspective of, like, always looking forward. Like, it's like now and tomorrow. Like, yesterday is behind us. We can't change it. And I don't know. I think that has given me a lot of stamina. The second thing is I've learned what drains me. The thing that drains me is not hard work. It's not, like, scary work of, like, will this work? It's politics. It's sort of like humans being bad to each other. That's a tax on us getting our jobs done and getting our work done. I like it really, I hate when I have to get up and make that the thing I deal with, as opposed to something our customers want or something that's hard about our business that we got to wrestle with. Like there's plenty of hard shit we shouldn't add to the list. And so having kind of learned that and then created an organization that hopefully reflects that, it's given me kind of, yeah, a long road. If you're not worrying all the time, What exactly are you thinking about? I can't imagine like not being anxious about literally everything out of my own control. Yeah. Well, first off, it is a little bit bad. Like the phrase, like only the paranoid survive, like has some real truth to it. So I'd say the people I hire are dramatically more paranoid than I am. I think my wife is also more paranoid than I am. And I'm very thankful to all of those people in my life for looking out for me. So I have learned that and I've tried to solve for that. But, you know, I think optimists invent the future, right? It's like, hey, this and this and this and this could work. And if you could do all these things, wow, imagine like what that would be as opposed to sort of the paranoid or the skeptic who's like, no, 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 no. Like there's no way all these things could work. We had all these bad reasons. We shouldn't waste our time doing that. And so I think my 
biggest impact inside the organization, what I can help the most is on forcing us to have a singular answer to big questions and ensuring that those answers are ambitious and that we don't settle. Because I I think, yeah, we have achieved success and we're big and there's lots to be proud of, but relative to the opportunity, we're still at zero. Like it hasn't actually worked enough to impact this market like you could say an Uber and Airbnb has in theirs. And I think it's inevitable that somebody does it in our category too. Switching gears just a little bit, this is one of your first jobs out of college. I see you studied political science, which makes me want to ask, growing up, did you always know that you were going to start a company? No. Or was there another path that you had in mind? No. And actually what's not on there, because I failed my last class, is a neuroscience major, which I was one class away from. And that's actually what I went to college being passionate about and wanting to study. And I went to Columbia in part because they had a really awesome undergrad neuroscience program. And I loved it. I love the classwork and the content and the material. But then I spent time in a lab. Mm. And I don't know if you've ever spent time in a lab, but uh, it did not click for me. Too monotonous, too monastic. And like entrepreneurship is like on the extreme other end. So I'm clearly wired for something else. But it, it just didn't click for me as a vocation. And that was confusing because I told myself and actually loved this stuff. I was like, I could study this all day long, but like, man, I cannot work in a lab all day long. So from there, I just like pursued random passions or interests because what else was I going to do? And one of them, and this is admittedly weird for a 20 year old, uh, but it was pension reform. Hmm. And I like wrote two op-eds for my student newspaper about pension reform because, you know, That's how passionate I was about it. And then because of that, I got connected to someone who was equally dorky and passionate about pension reform, actually more so arguably because he started this kind of nascent student advocacy group that was involved in the social security debate that I then joined and took a semester out from college. And this was then like what showed me how fun it was to build something out of nothing, to rally people around a shared dream and to really like, yeah, go for it. Even though like, I did not want to do it in D.C. or in the political arena. I grew up in the Bay Area. My parents are in tech. So that's when we're like, hey, we can do this in a whole different world. That's so interesting. I'm curious about like that experience of building a very different type of thing from the ground up and a little bit about what you mentioned earlier about how you've always thought you've surrounded yourself with good people at Thumbtack who have sort of helped fill the gaps that you've come across as you've grown the company, how do those sort of experiences influence your hiring and how you think about bringing people on board from this company that, yeah, you've been building your pretty much your whole adult life? Yeah. So, you know, what I have come to believe, and and I think what we've sort of put into practice is just the importance of being values driven. And I think hiring is a great place where that's expressed. And I think our values highlight sort of the behaviors that we want our employees and leaders to have. And through that, it gives you kind of the characteristics that you're looking for in people. So, you know, our first value is lead with why. You know, I look for people who are curious and also intellectually humble who say, I don't know, but here's what I think. Oh, I learned this other fact. I'll change my mind. You know, like that kind of like openness to new information and like humility in the face of the fact that like we are operating in a world that like is uncertain, right? So that's one example. The other is like make it count is the second value. I'm looking for people who are really sort of impact motivated, who want to see a result, who aren't satisfied just sort of thinking about something, but want to sort of 
do and impact. And then it keeps going, right? Like we look for people who choose teamwork is another value. And to me, that's somebody who like cares about the team success more than their own success and is like excited to work with and for a team in service of a bigger goal. So we look for people who are, yes, high confidence, but low ego and are interested in signing their names to everything. You know, we look for people who say what they mean because that's another value. And we care a lot about sort of directness and sort of straightforwardness. We think that helps us go faster and get better feedback. That is what I have really learned and put into practice, which is sort of the power of aligning people around a set of values. Not that there's like better and worse ones or perfect ones. It's more that it creates consistency in decision-making and that creates speed, right? Because then everybody's sort of operating in a similar way. And that means you can coordinate across an even bigger group of people for an even bigger objective. In addition to hiring, what are some policies that you've implemented as a founder in terms of fostering a positive company culture? I think, again, it's sort of what brings people in. Like, I think people come for the mission and stay for the people and the problems, we derive a lot of satisfaction about the fact that we help scale pro businesses. There's a pro I've hired. He's a mover, Alex. And like talked to him sort of recently. He's like the embodiment of the American dream. Former professional basketball player from Ukraine, comes here amid political turmoil, has a couple hundred bucks in his pocket and, you know, is a big guy, big, strong guy, and sort of realized, you know, he could sort of help his friend who had a moving business and then ultimately start his own. Now he's been a top pro on our platform for years and been hired hundreds of times and like is proud of this business he's built, but even more this life he's built, right? That's really motivating. You know, it's not always positive. Sometimes they say, hey, you let me down. I, I need the product or the business to do this, or you did that. And so, you know, it's hard to sort of honor that and, and deliver on that always, but that's what we strive to do. Um, and I think that's what people are really motivated by. And so I think positive is probably the wrong, it's not a lens I take to it. I think more of sort of like meaningful. And I think like that is more sustaining than positive. And there's lots of positivity in that meaning, but it's hard too. And like we fail sometimes too, and we got to own that. And I think in service of that kind of mission, that's necessary. Thinking about that feedback you just mentioned, because this is a marketplace, you obviously are both catering to both what customers want, but also these pros on the other end. And of course, balancing, is this something all pros would want? Is this something the specific pro would want? How much does feedback from both sides play a role? And how do you use that feedback to kind of keep pushing Thumbtack forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it's fundamental. And I think it comes in all shapes and sizes. I don't think there is sort of one way you get feedback you know, and it goes from the data exhaust we get from usage of the platform and any experiments that we can run that give us insight into that. And I call those sort of revealed preferences. And I think those are very useful up into including like Alex, who I just mentioned is, you know, part of a pro advisory board that we have and we get together with these folks and, you know, hear from them. And that's very qualitative and it's sort of a stated preference or a stated need. And I think you have to hear both of these because I think they're both kind of real. And then we get paid to use our good judgment to sort of chart a course, which is neither just a reflection of what the data may be indicating, nor is just a reaction to what sort of our pros have asked, but to sort of say, hey, in all this, what do we sort of see as the opportunity and, and sort of point there and, and go after that and then explain ourselves. And that's tricky. And I'll say one of the hardest things is when we get pitted 
in the middle of these things. For example, we used to operate as a sort of request for quote model. Mm. You as a customer would define what you're looking for. We matched that with the right pros who could be interested and those who were sent a quote back to you. Pros love this. It gave them total control. Customers, on the other hand, said, hey, I really wish I could just see these instantly. I'm in kind of shopping and buying mode. I'd love if I could just see the results like I do for everything else I shop for. So we had to sort of look at all that and realize, you know what? The customer's right. And that is where the world is going. Now we have to help educate and support these pros to provide that experience and build that into our platform. And that's hard because they were saying, hey, I don't want that. I want this other thing. And we're saying, yes, but the customer who we collectively serve does want this other thing. So that's what we got to go do. Before we wrap, I'm really interested to know, you've been in the Bay Area like basically your whole life. And there's been a lot of rumors as to what's going to happen to the ecosystem out there. And so basically, I'm just going to ask, what do you think the future of San Francisco is tech-wise? Do you think the city is dead? Oh, no. I'm very long San Francisco and technology in the Bay Area. This place is the best place in the world for it. And the density of talent is unrivaled. And the culture is unrivaled. Two things are, are sort of unique here. One is that like kind of wild ambition is supported, encouraged, celebrated. And it can be like crazy and stupid and sometimes huckstery. Like we have to deal with that in our industry too. But at the end of the day, I think we truly support wild-eyed ideas. And that is way beyond any other place I've been in the US or anywhere else. The other thing, which I think is incredibly unique and really hard for other places to sort of like jumpstart, is that tech is, I think, more positive sum than most industries, right? Think of finance. There's only a limited amount of alpha. Think of DC. There's only a limited amount of power. In LA, in terms, there's only so many like, you know, star slots. But like my buddy's tech company being successful doesn't take away from my opportunity and or anybody else's. And therefore, yes, I would love to help him and share what I know or, you know, help this other person to, to solve that problem. And so this idea that you can just share and it's better for everybody is really unique and powerful here. And I think, yeah, I think people who write have written the death knell story many times and I think they've always been wrong and this time will be no different. Kind of thinking of ending here on sort of a forward-looking note, as you mentioned, I know you're always looking forward. Thinking about you guys are 15 years in, seen many different market cycles at this point. What's next? I'm not going to just be like, so you're going you gonna to IPO? But like, what is next for Thumbtack? Yeah. And what do you see happening in the next few years? So first, I just would highlight how early we are in this transition. So take an industry like travel. Travel at this point is basically like 90% mediated by online marketplaces and services, right? Both of you, I'm sure, book almost 100% of your travel through some online platform. Probably never done it another way. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. For our industry, that number is less than 10%. Hmm. We are still in the very early days of this sort of transition and evolution. And through that, I think People don't appreciate how big this category can and will be. And then it also speaks to sort of what we are still trying to do because we think we're still yeah, early in this whole sector. And that is to continue to be the best place to hire, uh, the right pro for whatever you need, whenever you need it. And then secondly, to even more to give you the guidance and confidence to care for and invest in your home. Like that is, is the thing that's really missing for folks. Right now, not just hiring a pro, 
but having the confidence to do so for sort of, yeah, things that aren't just broken and need fixing, but you're trying to be proactive about, you're trying to invest in. So I'm really excited about that. I'm excited about our ability to help these homeowners care for and improve their home and connect with our amazing community of pros. Well, that's a perfect place to wrap. So thanks so much again, Marco, for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks you all. I appreciate it. And that was our conversation with Marco. Dom, what did you think? I thought it was really cool. No, I agree. And I think what stood out to me at first is sort of this thought that even though this company, Thumbtack, has been able to grow to the size it is and thinking of other people in the space like Angie's List and stuff like that, the thought that most people still don't use these online platforms to book services like this, but the amount, say 10% of people only are booking all of this stuff online was kind of shocking to me at first. But then I like thought about it more. I can definitely see the divides here. Like I'm sure my dad's never booked a service like this online. And then I think about other things like I use ZocDoc to book all of my appointments, even if it's a provider I've been to before. And like my dad's probably never done that either. He's probably never booked an appointment like that online. So I'm curious what you thought about that. I know I had a million thoughts in my head at first because I, I grew up in like in a small town. So I'm assuming like the idea of having an app to find people like that. I don't know. First, would would they be on an app like that? Or is that something that's like for really small communities? Is that something where it is more personal? Where like in my town, people still go door to door asking, you know, can I cut down your trees and stuff? I'm like, my plumber is my neighbor. Like just like that community oriented stuff. It makes sense that they wouldn't be on an app. But then I'm also like in a big city like this at the same time, I don't know how I would find these services without using an app. Right. So it makes sense that, yeah, I would use an app to book all of this and do all of this. I mean, even sometimes I get groceries delivered. Like I wouldn't know. I do live next door to two grocery stores. It's awful, but I will still, you know, have them <laughs> delivered. So it, it's really interesting. I was thinking about environments, like the environments people are in. But then I was also, it all makes sense. Like, yes, we should be able to book all of this stuff online. He brought up a good point, which was he's still early to the market and it's been 15 years. No, and I think the other part of this too is thinking about we probably assume these pros that we know, like you, I mean, you mentioned your parents' plumber is your neighbor. I mean, my parents' contractor was my friend's dad. It's like, you don't think of these people being online, but I don't know. After talking to like Farmers Business Network a few weeks ago, I'm like, maybe some of these Industries are like much more online than we realize. So like maybe even though like they're still sort of cracking the surface of getting customers to go on and book services that way who are used to calling on the phone or sort of going to the people they've been seeing for years. Maybe those providers, those pros are like way more adopting of this technology than we're giving them credit. That's true. And I was also just thinking about that in terms of I wouldn't know that because I don't have a home. <laughs> like I'm not. Oh, a, I know, Sam. I'm not a homeowner. Like this is a very uninformed. <laughs> I know. I am definitely not a homeowner. Uh, one day hashtag. But so yeah, I guess I I wouldn't I wouldn't know this stuff. I live in an apartment in New York City. <laughs> right. No, exactly. I just email my landlord and they sometimes respond and send people. Sometimes they don't. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, yep, that's city life. <laughs> exactly. One of the other big things that sort of jumped out at me is what did you think about the whole part of the conversation where we started talking about company culture? 
Oh, my goodness. It's so interesting because it inspired me to start working on a piece about it. Because we also had this conversation with like the last person we spoke to. And it's not saying that people like startup founders build a company dreaming about, you know, workplace policies that they're going to put in. Right. But it's always just interesting to see after so much discussion of burnout, toxic workplaces, um, like basically the last three years. It's always interesting when people or when founders still don't have a clear answer on how they're fostering, I guess, positive workplace culture. And I mean, because I was thinking about it, like it's obviously being part of a startup, it is going to be a harsh environment. I do feel like there's a different generation of workers coming in who they're totally fine with this harsh workplace environment, but they do want other things out of it. It's interesting to see not having a clear answer yet. But what were your thoughts? It is so funny talking with Marco and Rebecca Rosenberg from Reboca so close together because not that their answers were similar, but the fact that they didn't have a quick response or sort of like, oh, maybe we haven't thought about X, Y, Z, but we have thought about this one piece and like this is super important. is interesting because obviously in Reboca's case, they're looking to hire their first employee. But like looking at Thumbtack, like Thumbtack's been around for 15 years. They have a bunch of employees. But it's maybe too easy to say that maybe some of these policy issues haven't come up because they haven't had issues yet. But even if that's the case, it's sort of the whole thing where it's like you haven't had issues because you're not going to. You just haven't had issues because you haven't had them yet. Or because no one's talking about them yet. Right. So it's like I am always hesitant to be like this hasn't happened when this happens to everyone because it won't as opposed to like, oh, it just hasn't yet. Or you're just... Talking about it. You and I, as reporters, know that it's always happening, and every founder is like one source leak away from, you know, a story being written because it's always happening. Employees just aren't talking to you about them. Right. And so that's why it's always interesting. I mean, like, especially with, I guess, Rebecca, I was thinking, you know, her being a really early founder, that would be the time, I guess, to think about what type of community you want to foster. Or so I think, I don't know though, I'm not running a business. I don't know the pressures. This whole outro is uninformed opinions. (laughs) Another uninformed opinion. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's just an interesting thing to note. That's all. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I mean, thinking about where the company is at 15 years in, the same founder is still the same CEO. And like, we haven't heard too much or like things, there hasn't been a ton of shakeup. Like, I don't know, like they must be doing something right on that side. Maybe if they haven't formalized it, that doesn't necessarily mean to say everything's going rosy. And like you mentioned, I feel like you're totally right that the majority of companies are like one source like away from something going wrong. But because you always think like, like a founder remains as a CEO for that long, like obviously something's working. Yeah. And like stuff is working in the company and the company has a reason to sort of keep those people on board. And obviously talking to Marco, he clearly still is super into the mission and wants to be there. So works out on both sides. So yeah, not the full story. Yeah. But you know, shout out to him for being really, really passionate and working every role at the company and just really knowing his business inside and out. I thought it was really funny when he was talking about how like his passion was, it was like neuroscience, right? And yeah. he didn't get enough credits for it, got the degree in political science. And then, no, what was it? It was He said that he took like a lab and realized that neurology wasn't for him, which is funny because I feel like it's usually like organic chemistry that gets people out of it. But taking that lab and he was like, no way, I have to literally do something else. I wonder how that conversation goes with your parents, though. Like you go to school to be like a doctor or work in medicine and then you come home and you're like, actually, mom, dad, I'm, I'm going to start a company. 
Like, how does that, how does, I mean, it's probably fine for him because he's from the Bay Area and his parents are in tech. But I was just thinking about that. It is true. And it is funny that you said that because I've, I've heard from other people something similar who are like, my aunt actually was planning to work in a lab career and worked one week and was like, never again. No way. <laughs> so it's like, definitely, I think a little more common in that space than I realized. Yeah. And oh my goodness, speaking of the Bay Area, I'm also glad we got that question to him of, is SF dead? Because all I see on tech Twitter is like, there's like two sides, people trying to say like San Francisco is done. And then the other side is people trying to convince me that it's still alive. And they're like, look at me at this cafe. See, definitely not dying. And I'm like, okay, like, oh, I know. What's the truth? No, I know. And I feel like his answer was good, too. Because like, you're right. It's literally like people on Twitter just like shouting about it. Like, it's dead or like, no, it's not. It's amazing. And he was just like, I don't know. Talent's good here. Like, it's good to build. VCs are here, like, yeah. I, I want to live here. And it's like, all right, that feels a lot more real than half the yelling on Twitter where you're like, is this even a person? Is this <laughs> a bot? Like, you're like, I don't even know who this is. <laughs> like, yeah. are you a robot? So I thought that was, yeah, you're right. That was interesting to finally, like, get, like, a real answer to that question. That's not just Twitter noise. But, oh, my goodness, what were your thoughts on the lack of paranoia and, like, the lack of anxiety? I'm jealous. I wish I had a brain that worked that way. I definitely... Will say, I mean, in some ways, I'm like, I don't know how you could run a company without worrying about things. Cause I feel like worrying about things, while frustrating, annoying, can be a time waste, is of course also a good way to sort of like inform decisions. Cause you sort of are thinking about the potential negatives more than maybe someone who isn't worrying is thinking about. But I mean, whoo, man, I just would love to have that much free space in my brain. I know. I'm just like, I was also thinking about, I'm like, what's it like to not? feel anxious. I, I don't know. I'm anxious all the time when I'm not, I feel anxious sometimes about not feeling anxious. I'm like, I feel like there's something I should be worried about. Like, right. But he also admitted that sometimes it's not always a good thing. And so I was like, okay, maybe a little bit, but also I would like to see for myself. Oh, I know. The beauty of not being anxious sounds too good to be true. I know. <laughs> Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter, Dominic Midori Davis. Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Listener.